back to uh, the You Dumb Dumb podcast. You Dumb Dumb! Uh, we haven't recorded one of these in ages, but I guess we're, we're getting back into it. Uh, today we're, being ta- we're talking about the sort of post-Civil War era, uh, which of course uh, begins with the end of the Civil War, uh, the surrender of Lee and the... Um, and the uh, surrender of Lee and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Um, um, so the Andrew Johnson immediately becomes president. And of course, Andrew Johnson, if you don't know, uh, was a Democrat. Before he joined Lincoln's ticket uh, in 1864, as sort of a ticket of national unity uh, in order to sort of try to beat the opponents who... Um, Andrew Johnson thought the Democrats, Democrats were weird in 1864. Again, we talked about this previously. They had an anti-war platform, but a pro-war candidate and an anti-war vice president. So it was just very confused. But uh, Johnson thought it was it was uh, anti-war enough for him to join a ticket. He was a, a Democrat uh, who was for the Civil War, and he was from Tennessee. And he uh, sort of also. Uh, he became president, of course, immediately after Lincoln gets assassinated, and he was not a very good president. Right. So, um, right, there are various problems with the Johnson presidency. Um, the and he ended up getting impeached, but not convicted, and he fell short of a conviction by one vote. Um, the one of the things I didn't know was that he actually never really became a Republican, right? So he was it was a kind of a unity ticket, so he was always a, a Democrat, so that sort of made life even worse. He also was very much, uh, didn't, made no bones about being opposed to the radical Republicans' agenda. And bear in mind, the radical Republicans' agenda is, uh, would be the agenda that modern-day America would think of as completely reasonable, right? So the radical Republicans' agenda is, of course, black people should be allowed to vote, and black people should be given full civil rights, and no, you cannot you know, murder them with impunity or things like that, right? So that was considered a radical agenda at the time, right? So this is kind of getting into this broader sweep of history of Reconstruction and the extent to which it succeeded, which in my opinion is probably not very much, right? And sort of the, the end of Reconstruction, I think we would date that as the election of 1876 uh, with the election of Rutherford B. Hayes, just jumping, getting, previewing that a little bit. That's the election where arguably no one really knows who won because there's a lot of voter fraud. The official popular vote count shows the Democrats winning, but the Republicans struck a deal where rather than fight it, the Republicans would take the presidency, but they would agree to pull troops out of the South, and that kind of ended Reconstruction. And then a lot of the progress that was made between 1865 and 1876 was then rolled back. Right, and then that, and then Jim Crow was allowed to rise, and then Jim Crow follows through all the way into, you know, whatever 1964 or five. Right, you probably can say Jim Crow is alive and well until under LBJ and the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Right, um, so uh, so this this is a good point to review a, a mistake I made in one of the previous episodes where I said that in uh, later 19th century politics there was this uh, phrase, and I said it as wave the bloody flag, and it actually is wave the bloody shirt. And it's an it's, it's important distinction, right? So the difference is that 
Oh, we're experiencing technical difficulties here. Hold on, you dum-dums. All right. So, um, so the uh, the disti distinction between wave the bloody wave the bloody flag and wave the yeah, just hold on to it. Between wave the bloody flag and wave the bloody shirt, <laughs> Chesper, <laughs> is that I was thinking what that meant was the Republicans were metaphorically, not literally, waving a bloody flag from the Civil War, right? Because in Civil War battles, uh, the, a big thing was following the regimental flag, and so it was really important that the, the red, that during the battle the flag would be picked up and carried forward. And I thought that the, this, this sort of uh, hackneyed technique for rallying support for the Republican cause by reminding people of the Civil War would be, uh, would be metaphorically waving around a bloody flag from one of the famous Civil War battles. But in fact, it's waved the bloody shirt, and the bloody shirt, I'm not sure if the bloody shirt was ever physically wave, waved, but there was a, um, an incident during Reconstruction where, um, where uh, a Republican politician who had gone down south to uh, participate in Reconstruction was badly beaten by the Klan. And the bloody shirt that he had, um, which is just a normal shirt that he was wearing, was was proof that the, that the Southerners were not participating in Reconstruction, they were fighting Reconstruction, and that they had beaten this politician for no reason, right? So this gives you an idea of how important sort of the Klan and the failure of Reconstruction was, that almost right away, what the Republicans are complaining about is not that we fought the Civil War, right? It wasn't that the Republicans are like, those jerks made us fight the Civil War, like, let's remind everyone what jerks they were about fighting the Civil War. It wasn't the Republicans fighting Lincoln's vision of national unity, it was the Republicans reacting to the Southern, the Southerners fighting against Lincoln's vision, right? The Southerners refusing to participate in Reconstruction, fighting back against Reconstruction, and then the Republicans try to rally support for their cause by reminding voters that the Southerners are winning the peace; they're not participating fully in Reconstruction, right? Uh, yeah. So that 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 uh, yeah, that, that that is very interesting. That was sort of like uh, a very common Republican tactic was to show the Democrats as sort of uncivilized or sort of brutish uh but anyways let's get back to andrew johnson he uh had his own sort of vision of reconstruction which was very sort of uh not radical republican he thought that he didn't think that the the southern states had to give the african-americans rights he just didn't really care he just wanted to sort of admit them as is and so he sort of pursued what's called presidential reconstruction where he just tried to admit all the old states right back into the union and the republican whole held congress got very upset at him over this and there's like sort of battles back and forth and neither dem uh, neither the president nor congress could really do anything uh because of the veto and because the president can't pass laws on his own um and then the the midterms of 1866 came around uh johnson was so unpopular with his uh presidential reconstruction that the Republicans were able to gain supermajorities in the House and the Senate. And with that, they were able to override his vetoes and pass a reconstruction agenda basically over the head of the president, which is very interesting. Uh, it's called radical reconstruction, where they uh, threw a, a variety of reconstruction acts and they also started to pass constitutional amendments. Um, they basically mandated that the South had to give African-Americans equal civil rights and especially uh, they had to give African Americans the vote, and so, um, but Congress and, and the president just hated each other at this point. Uh, Andrew Jackson hated Congress. Congress hated him back, uh, and so eventually, uh, there's there's a dude. Uh, what was his name? The the one that got fired. 
Uh, uh, wasn't it um, the Secretary of War? Yeah. Uh, William Stanton? Yeah, it was Stanton. Uh, William Stanton, the Secretary of War, who the radical Republicans liked, uh, was, um, uh, was uh, fired by Andrew Johnson. And previously, Congress had passed a law that said the president actually can't fire Edward Stanton, basically. <laughs> they, were, they were like, no, we like him too much, so we'll pass a law. And then Andrew Johnson fired him anyways, which violating the law. And so the Republicans tried to impeach him over that, which is eh, it's a, a bit politically motivated, people would argue. It's not very... To be, te no. to be technical with terminology, they did successfully impeach him. Yeah, they, they just they failed to convict him. him. The House, but the Senate... Uh, failed to convict him by a very, very narrow margin. By just been, by one vote, I think. There's been only uh, oh, very, very few actual impeachments in the U.S. There's been just, just three. Andrew Johnson, uh, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. Hooray! Uh, yeah, now it's apparently more common. Though, though uh, Nixon was never actually impeached. Uh, right. Everyone knows that. Um, and so, yeah, this was the closest he was ever president was actually got, gotten to getting impeached impe impe and uh, removed uh, because the, the Senate came very, very close to actually removing him by like one or two votes, uh, but they didn't do it. So that's that's interesting. But he, he avoided his impeachment just barely. And let me butt in. So, so one thing that's kind of interesting is the, the law that they were using to try to impeach him is a law that then was discarded fairly quickly, and it wouldn't really – it would be that, that this law would be considered absurd in modern, in modern times, right? This idea that the president – lacks the authority to dismiss a member of his own cabinet would be considered kind of insane. And um, yeah, uh, JT's looking at it right now. I'm not sure, was it struck down in a, in a um, Supreme Court ruling? Or? It was, it, was, it was significantly weakened in 1869 and completely repealed in 1887. So it never, did the Supreme Court ever rule on it? Because it seems like kind of a ridiculous. Um, uh, yeah, the Supreme Court later uh, in talking about a similar act, uh, the Supreme Court said that the act was likely un unconstitutional. Right, so it's never going to come back. So it was sort of a pretext. I mean, by modern stand, you know, it's kind of a, uh, you know, one would think that by uh, this modern interpretation, probably the, the fair thing was for Johnson to not be impeached because the law was ridiculous, right? This law that he doesn't have the right to dismiss a member of his own cabinet is, like, frankly ridiculous. And, and it's considered ridiculous by modern standards, right? Nobody would ever try to pass a law today you know, like it's not something like the Democrats have full control of the House and the Senate and Trump is the president. They're not going to pass some law that says Trump is stuck with so-and-so as the Secretary of State or, you know, back when the Secretary of State was somebody that was more like Rex Tillerson was more bipartisan, you know, was more acceptable from, bipart for, from a bipartisan standpoint. They weren't going to force the president to hold on to him. So, um, and another, uh, another sidebar on this, if you've read uh, the book Profiles and Courage. So I like to, uh, I never, I never like to miss an opportunity to, 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 to take a knock, knock at the Kennedy family. So, um, so uh, um, the, the, I'm not a huge fan of the Kennedy family, although I'm, I'm mostly a Democrat. Um, so the book Profiles and Courage was not really written by JFK. Uh, this was, that was kind of a fraud that was perpetuated for a long time that he wrote it. It was almost completely ghostwritten by, I think it was Ted Sorensen. And anyway, in that book, they described the senator that voted to, um, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, what's the opposite of a, 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 a convicted? To acquit, right? The senator that voted to acquit Johnson was, was treated as a profile in courage. 
because he sort of bucked pressure from his own party. I think actually in reality there's a lot, fair amount of evidence that that senator was simply bribed, right? So it wasn't much of a profile of courage. He was just profiling in venality. But, but his, on the other hand, he was bribed to do something that by modern standards would be considered the right thing, right? Because it's like, well, that law was stupid. So, um, so that's sort of the strange and mysterious saga of the Andrew Johnson impeachment. Um, and then, uh, and then from Johnson, you're right. So, do you want to pick up with the next uh, administration? From, from Johnson, we go to the 1868 election, which was um, basically all about Reconstruction. Uh, the the Democratic candidate Horatio Seymour ran against uh, Ulysses Grant, who was, of course, uh, the very popular general in the Civil War on the side of the Union. Uh, Horatio Seymour was, uh, um, I believe, a governor of New York or something. Uh, let me let me check. Yes, he was the governor of New York uh, during the Civil War. Um, I was correct. Um, and anyways, uh, the election was basically on Reconstruction. Ulysses Grant sort of campaigned on his achievements in the Civil War and sort of a unifying message of peace. And Horatio Seymour mostly campaigned on a, a racist message, a very sort of anti-Reconstruction, racialized message. Um, he was all talking about... Um, uh, he, he talked a lot about sort of the, the African Americans and talking about how they would uh, a semi-barbarous race of blacks who are worshippers of fetishes and polygamists. Yeah. Um, yeah. This I mean, ridiculous. I'm not sure if, if Grant really needed to campaign that much, right? I mean, I think he, did it, he didn't campaign that much. He yeah. Sort of, he sort of sat back and he let the papers do the work for him. He sort of uh, campaigned on uh, general peace. And uh, war, uh, post-war, uh, the Republican papers were pretty uh, awful to Horatio Seymour. They brought up his like uncle's suicide to like say that he was yeah, insane is, yeah. because insanity ran. Okay, <laughs> your uncle commits suicide. Uh, was, uh, suicide <laughs> of his father, actually. But uh, yeah, and then uh, they also talked about. Uh, they also compared him to the New York draft. They they blamed him for not doing enough about like New York draft riots. Um, and basically, uh, Sir, yeah, Seymour just lost. Uh, he also, they, the, the, the Democratic opponents brought up uh, Grant's anti-Semitic general order number 11, which was, which was a pretty valid critique because Grant just like expelled a bunch of Jewish people from his Oh, uh, okay, his so now you're bringing up, I should dig into this because I think he's a, a little, un, I think that might be an unfair knock on Grant. I, I read a Grant biography, but I don't remember that exactly. So we'll try to loop back in a future you dum dum to to this anti-Semitic knock on Grant. So, yeah, just to remind everyone, the two, the, I mean, obviously, I mean, in, I think Lincoln was obviously a celebrity by virtue of, of becoming the president. The, the, so leaving aside Lincoln, and of course Lincoln doesn't survive the Civil War, so um, the two great celebrities coming out of the Civil War, particularly people that were unknown or completely, you know, like not more, worse than unknown, actually not even successful in their ordinary life, who then became mega celebrities, and the, the biggest heroes of the war were basically Grant and Sherman. Um, to a lesser extent, Sheridan. Um, but Grant and Sherman were like ridiculously famous and well-known. Um, and of the two, and, and uh, you don't have to know a lot about 19th century politics to know this, Grant wanted to become president and Sherman refused to become president, right? So Grant made no bones that like, yeah, I think the next thing for me is to become president. And Sherman was repeatedly um, uh, um, uh, courted to become president. I think he, it was actually wondered and debated whether he could actually work 
as a Democratic candidate, although I'm not 100% sure about that, because there wasn't necessarily as much animus against him in spite of Sherman's march in the, while he was alive. I believe the animus against him grew sort of nearer the end of his life, but sort of more in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the, there wasn't necessarily as much animus against him. Essentially, um, the, the sort of this idea that Sherman's march was this horrific violation of, of the rules of war and constituted this war crime for which you know the um, Sherman and, and maybe even the North can never be forgiven. This is sort of a lost cause trope that like a lot of the lost cause ideas, you know, that Lee wasn't really that much of a fan of slavery, he, um, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff sort of was invented and, and pushed forward, um, I think a lot by the daughters of the, uh, um, was it the daughters of the, daughters Confederate? of the Confederate? Yeah, which is like basically a straight up white supremacist group. I mean, I'm not, no offense to people whose like relatives were participating in that. It's like, doesn't have a great modern day legacy. Um, and so that, uh, you know, that, that idea, the horrors of the terribleness of, of William Tecumseh Sherman was sort of an invention that came back upon later. Um, you know, at the time, there was, I think he, for, uh, he was enjoyed a fair amount of respect. He probably would have been a Republican if he had become president. Um, so, um, yeah, do you want to say a little bit more about Grant's uh, first term, and then I'll talk a little bit more about Sherman? Grant's first term. Uh, we can talk about Grant's first term. Uh, interestingly, that uh, Grant won the election par partially on the basis of the fact that he won the African Americans in the South by a wide margin. The only Southern states he didn't win were the ones that hadn't been readmitted to the Union yet, or were Georgia and Louisiana, which had heavy uh, KKK activity, which was suppressing votes. Like you could see that you can see that sort of suppression on like the the map. Like look, you can see the sort of the black belt and then it sort of ends at the Georgia border, which is interesting. Uh, wow, that's insane. Um, yeah, there's a great there's a great map on Wikipedia that's really interesting to look at. Um, so, um, uh, uh, but yeah, so Grant Grant become pre becomes president, and he is a sort of a very very complicated figure, I would say. Uh, his administration. What do you think about Grant? I mean, we should talk about a bit about him. Okay, sure. I think the 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 easy the the I think the the simplest explanation of, for Grant was he did not work well with untrustworthy people, and he was not a, necessarily a fantastic job of who or was or was not trustworthy. At least in his capacity as president, right? I think um, you know you could imagine. I think the way I would the way it probably worked during the Civil War when he was general was that. Everybody that was in his direct command was somebody that r truly wanted to win the war, that wanted to win whatever battles they were engaged in. And essentially, he was just assessing competence, and he was assessing competence by results on the field, right? And so that's how we learned to trust Sherman, was they, they fought uh, at Shiloh together, and he quickly identified Sherman as somebody that was a reliable understudy, right? And similarly, he, you know, he, he, uh, similarly Sheridan rose up through the ranks by simply demonstrating competence and bravery. Um, there was also, oh, I'm forgetting the name, but the guy that was shot through the lung in the Southern campaign, the one that they thought was, would, would be the brightest star of all. Um, so uh, at any rate, the, as president, you know, he wasn't, um, there wasn't this obvious metric of meritocracy and this assumption of like basic integrity and you know, uh, basic commitment to the same basic goal was just not really there, right? So he would, the people ending up in his in his administration were often 
somewhere in the very in the in the neighborhood of incompetent or or venal and corrupt or some combination of incompetent and venal and corrupt. And so, you know, it just is a kind of goes to show you that the traits that make you a great general don't necessarily make you a great president. I guess the other presidents that we assess in this category would be uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and what's the third big one? The, the general, the Mexican-American War general, just to jump back to the previous, was that um, Zachary Taylor? Uh, uh, yeah, Zachary Taylor. And he just died, right? Yeah, Zachary Taylor just died. Yeah, so we don't have a good assessment. So he, we, we're not entirely sure what kind of president he was because he died too quickly. Right? So, 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 so the American experiment with great generals who become great presidents is basically one and one. And with the Dwight Eisenhower example, it's even more interesting because if you get into Dwight Eisenhower's biography, the knock against him was he was never really a combat president. He was actually more, or, sorry, a combat general. He was actually more of a, um, he never really led, led troops into battle at all, um, never put himself into personal danger. Um, uh, he was actually more of a coordinating general uh, who supervised things at a high level and, and um, was deeply involved in, in, uh, in foreign relations and foreign policy and managing the alliance with the British and the Free French. And so that's actually really good training for becoming a president, right? Like one of the things the president can actually have a lot of control for is foreign policy. And his experience as general was at such a high level and was such a unique sort of position that it was a, actually a fantastic understudy for becoming a secretary of state and as president, he was essentially very active, almost his own secretary of state, right? So, um, uh, do, 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 do. so I just want to say a little bit more about Sherman before we wrap up. I read a great book, uh, Burke Davis's book about Sherman's march. I read that to get the perspective of somebody that that the knock on that book is that Burke Davis is seen as maybe a more of a too much of a Southern sympathizer, and he sort of tries to portray Sherman's march in the most negative light possible, but not in a way that involves any, um, anything that's counterfactual, right? So it's all factually accurate. But he sort of tries to highlight, you, can, you get the sense that he's kind of highlighting the worst parts of Sherman's march. I came away from it you know, being as big a fan of Sherman and Sherman's march as I was before. You know, at the end of the day, I still believe the basic point that you know, Sherman makes, which is, if I was a Southerner, what would I rather have, a barn or a son? You know? So he's like, I was destroying his barn to try to save his son. Right. So, um, uh, and I also read uh, a book about uh, I think Terrible Swift Sword. It's about a biography of uh, Sheridan, and I think the same the the knock that you can make against Sherman and Sheridan and Grant is basically the 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 knock against them is not that they were overly cruel to the South and fighting the Civil War. The knock against them is probably that they were overly cruel in sort of dealing with the Plains Indians. Um, subsequent to the Civil War, mm -hmm. right? There was, you know, there were there were actually a lot harsher on on Indian villages than they were on Southern cities, and whereas the and the whereas the Native Americans actually had done a lot less to 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 Americans to merit such anger, but they sort of brought more fury and vengeance to Native Americans than they did against Southerners. Um, so that's that's a more interesting case. Um, I mean, the. You know, you can sort of try to imagine a better America where Reconstruction didn't fail, where uh, you know black citizens maintained their full civil rights in the South through modern times. It's hard to imagine America where essentially the Plains Indian culture wasn't swept aside because the one thing that everybody could agree on, you know, everybody other than the Indians themselves, was that the plain the culture of the Plains Indians had to go. Right. The one thing everybody agreed on was Manifest Destiny, which is yeah, we need to put 
all that real estate to work. You know, all that real estate needs to be used for ranching and farming to make America, you know, great and powerful. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's hard to imagine any, you know, the, Ameri the, the they certainly would have been better if, if the Indians had been treated more gently, but it just, it just seems really bizarre to imagine America which the Indians' land and culture doesn't get swept aside one way or another. Um, okay, is there anything more you want to add, you dum-dum? Uh, no. Okay, you dum-dums. So um, we'll pick this up uh, probably the second half of Grant and into Rutherford B. Hayes at the next episode of You Dum Dum.